0: I think it's a grammar thing. You have to like double up that consonant before, like, if you were spelling like jogging or I I don't know. I feel like you have to, I don't know. This just, I think you're saying if it's 1X,
1: if it's 1X, it's doxing?
0: Right. That's exactly what I'm saying. Yes, it's unacceptable. I don't know. Freedom of speech, fundamental rights,
2: freedom of uh, conscience,
0: academic freedom, freedom of press, and
1: the
2: right to listen.
3: You're listening to, so to speak, the free speech podcast brought to you by fire, the foundation for individual rights and expression. All right, folks, we're going to jump right in today. The past couple of podcasts have been high level, cerebral, focused on one topic. Today's podcast, we're going to do a news roundup. And the biggest news of the week is that we had argument at the Supreme Court in the net choice cases. We've talked about them on this podcast before, but just for those of you who have forgotten or might not be familiar with the cases we had laws passed in the state of Florida and the state of Texas regulating how social media companies can moderate content. And Florida, the case was Moody v. Netchoice, and the state of Florida made it illegal for social media platforms to bar candidates for office in their state. This was precipitated, um, so we think, By the state's concerns surrounding the social media companies in the wake of January 6th barring then President Trump from the platforms and then the law in Florida also bars social media platforms from removing content from a journalistic enterprise and this was motivated allegedly by the reaction to the Hunter Biden laptop story. Some of you might recall that Twitter banned the New York Post article about the Hunter Biden laptop story. But in Texas. You have a somewhat different law, which prohibits the platforms, broadly speaking, from removing any content based on a user's viewpoint. If you go to the Fifth Circuit in the Fifth Circuit decision in the Texas case, where they upheld the Texas law, the Florida law was struck down by the Circuit Court. There, um, Judge Andrew Oldham wrote in the Fifth Circuit decision that, to generalize just a bit the florida law quote prohibits all censorship of some speakers close quote while the one from texas quote prohibits some censorship of all speakers close quote if that makes sense so we had argument in the net choice case on tuesday i have with us aaron tur fires director of public advocacy alex mori fires director of campus rights advocacy and then for a last minute addition to this podcast we have fire general counsel ronnie london i pulled him out of a meeting so ronnie i appreciate you joining us we'll keep you here shortly just for the net choice conversation i want to get folks's brief response to what unfolded in that case during the oral argument i think the biggest takeaway is that the justices really struggled to understand the reach of these laws so For example, there is the traditional what you might think of social media practice, the news feeds, right, Um, where people are posting content and then that content is getting distributed to users in an algorithmic or chronological feed. And then they also had questions about whether the law reaches other things that maybe don't involve as much content moderation. Things like Facebook's marketplace. Is Uber a social media platform and would some of the features of Uber be swept with in this law. Gmail, Etsy, Venmo, Amazon Web Services. Justice Elena Kagan suggested that the Florida law is unconstitutional as applied to things like a Facebook feed, but she wondered if it would be legitimate as applied to tech services that are not expressive products like Uber. Uh, Justice Alito, for example, raised the possibility of remanding the case for more discussion at the lower court to kind of better develop the record surrounding what the Florida law applies to. I want to get your guys' perspective. Ronnie, I'll maybe start with you. This case is up on a facial challenge. So what should the justices be assessing with regard to the constitutionality of these laws?
2: Well, I mean, let's be clear. If you're talking about a law that regulates the internet and online communication, you are talking, uh, by definition, about a law that regulates speech. So if you start slicing and dicing a law and saying, "Well, would it apply to Uber because part of Uber is purely conduct in you know transactions between drivers and passengers and you know, being told where to meet and how far away the car is and all that OK, that, that has nothing to do with this law. And if you asked any of the legislators who voted in favor of it, I'm sure they would tell you that that was not in their minds at all now. To the extent that there are expressive elements of Uber, such as um, comments on particular drivers, particular passengers, ratings, and other things, arguably it could apply to those. I mean, certainly we know it was meant to, to apply to the large social media platforms uh, that are channels for communication by all of the users. That was the motivation yeah. for passing That's right. The that's right. I think it's pretty And clear. so when you're talking about this, one of the things that came up in the argument early on was you know, on this overbreath argument, they kind of harped on this idea that there are uh, there is a, a, a plainly legitimate sweep, and so f- therefore the co- statute should be constitutional. Now that's that's not the test. The test for substantial over for overbreath in the first Amendment context is whether the law prohibits a substantial amount of protected speech relative to its plainly legitimate sweep. So first of all, I think there's a threshold question. Of whether a law like this that would compel speech. And let's not forget that. These are not laws that would say social media platforms may not carry X, Y, or Z content. They're saying you must carry X, Y, or Z content and not discriminate based on viewpoint, whether you want the content on your service or not.
3: So, so as an example, because I think uh, Paul Clement, who was arguing for net choice in both of these cases, said that if, for example, under Texas statute, a social media company allowed content about suicide prevention on its platform, it would also have to allow <clears throat> content advocating or encouraging people to commit suicide because to not allow that latter content would be viewpoint discriminatory, right? Or if it allows pro-Semitic speech, it would also have to allow anti-Semitic
2: well, speech. Well, that's right. And you know, right. and and, even, I'm sorry, Aaron, um, even to the extent that, um, it, this would eliminate the ability of social media platforms to have any uh, standards of conduct or content on their platforms. Because we know, for example, from Metal versus Tam, that giving offense is a viewpoint, right? We know that, you know, being sex positive is a viewpoint. So if you wanted to keep pornography off your social media platform, or you wanted to keep hate speech off your social media platform, Um, put aside whether you think that's a good idea or not, everybody might have different opinions on it, you simply would not be allowed to do it. So this is a compelled speech statute. So getting back to substantial overbreath, the first question is, does a statute that compels speech have any plainly legitimate sweep? Last term in 303 Creative, which was another compelled speech about a website designer having to provide uh, website wedding design services for same-sex couples, the court was pretty clear that we simply don't compel speech under our First Amendment jurisprudence. And there's a, you know, there's a long line of cases you know going back to um, the, the parade cases Hurley and going back to Barnett where we don't compel speech. And you don't sub- subject it to strict scrutiny or overbreath or anything. You just don't compel speech because it forces someone to say what's not in their mind. So there's a threshold question of whether there's a plainly legitimate sweep here at all. If there isn't, then full stop, it's over, it's overbroad. But even if you can conceive of a plainly legitimate sweep here, the substantial amount of content that this would require social media platforms to include that they might not want to include grossly outweighs whatever the plainly legitimate sweep might be. And it's hard to define what that plainly legitimate sweep might be, but Surely, it pales in comparison to all of the things and the complete lack of control that social media platforms would resultingly have by not being able to discriminate based on viewpoint. Sorry,
3: that seems like the suggestion is that the plainly legitimate sweep would involve <clears throat> regulating what you might term as like inter- internet infrastructure things like Amazon Web Services or Venmo or Gmail. Um, people can take issue with that characterization as internet infrastructure, but things that don't have as much of an expressive purpose. And it seemed like Paul Clement and then the Biden administration's Solicitor General, Elizabeth Prelegar, kind of had a disagreement surrounding what could be regulated uh, under the First Amendment. We're talking about the different applications that theoretically could be brought within the sweep of both laws. Aaron? I think and
1: Clement, Clement pointed out that uh, the states opposed preliminary injunctions of these laws on the theory that social media platforms removing content is unprotected censorship conduct and not a protected exercise of editorial discretion. And therefore, it doesn't even implicate the First Amendment. Uh, so their their argument was really focused on the issue of social media platforms, content moderation and what appears in people's news feeds and on their personal feeds. And, you know, not what not what Uber is doing. Um,
3: yeah. So yeah, you know, it was it was weird to hear this all brought up during oral argument because you just didn't see any of this discussion in the decisions at the circuit courts, yeah. Or at least I don't yeah. recall it.
1: Yeah, and I, I think my uh, one of my big takeaways though is that I think most of the justices and Ronnie, you tell me if you agree, seem sympathetic to the argument that forcing private social media platforms to host speech against their will is fundamentally at odds with the First Amendment. So on that core constitutional question, I think net choices in good shape.
2: Yeah, no, I would agree with that. I mean, if the net result of this is some kind, and I can't imagine how it would be, but if the ruling was, okay, this, and, and remember, this is a facial challenge. And they, you know, the and the proponents. Can you remind
3: our listeners, Ronnie, what a facial challenge is as opposed to as applied?
2: Right. So a facial challenge basically says this statute, um, in all of its applications, should be enjoined because it's unconstitutional. That doesn't necessarily mean that every single one of its applications is unconstitutional. But for example, with respect to an overbreath challenge. Um, the plainly legitimate sweep is vastly outweighed by the constitutional speech that it would uh, regulate or on a compelled speech, it compels speech on its face. Therefore, there's no applications that would be permissible. Whereas as applied, you're talking about applying the statute to particular parties or litigants in specific ways. And in those respects, the statute should be enjoined and is unconstitutional. Here, we've got a facial challenge and uh, the Advocates for the government kept making a point that this is a facial challenge, and you know facial challenges should be disfavored. And we, you know, we we don't really have a record developed on how this applies to any of these particular uh, respondents here or the particular social media platforms, um, and therefore they have a heavy burden. But you know, Paul Clement did remind the court at a certain point, saying, "Hey, we have a long and rich history of." facial challenges against unconstitutional regulations that restrict speech or compel speech in this country. So, I mean, I think, I think that really is, you know, should be less of an issue. I mean, it's, it, you, you have to really buy into the argument. You almost have to accept the common carrier argument to get to the point where you say these regulations in significant ways don't regulate speech, but rather regulate conduct. And, you know, I mean, we've, we've discussed in previous podcasts, this case in particular, and what the, uh, some of the weaknesses are with the common carrier argument.
3: Yeah. <clears throat> It'll be interesting to see how everything comes out here. And if they do remand the case for, as justice Alito suggested, uh, for more discussion at the lower court levels to better develop the record. Um, but Matthew Schaefer, who's been on this podcast before, I think, had a, a really smart takeaway from just the general overbreath discussion with respect to First Amendment facial challenges. He says on X, if you take the approach that many of the justices are taking to facial challenges and the evidentiary record today, you are encouraging state legislators to adopt ambiguous and sweeping laws, restricting speech, and thereby putting the onus on the speaker to find their way out, which just isn't how we do First Amendment facial challenges. Well, that's right.
2: And, and the other thing is, I don't know why you need to remand for further proceedings to develop the record, um, you've got a preliminary injunction in place. That's not where a case ends, right? I mean, certainly the parties could move to have the preliminary injunction converted into a permanent injunction, and that would be the end of the case. But oftentimes in a case, you'll get a preliminary injunction, and then you will move on to, you know, if there are disputed questions of material fact. You move on to summary judgment, and you have discovery, and you develop the record, and then the next phase would be an injunction proceeding on summary judgment, where you could have all of that developed. I mean, don't forget, I mean, these these are these, these statutes in both cases, in the Fifth Circuit, the 11th Circuit, and in the district courts in those cases, they are here on a preliminary injun- injunction, not a final judgment. So there's there's still plenty of proceedings that can happen, even if you just let the injunction stay in place and let the courts proceed in their natural course.
3: I just don't see how you rule for the state of Texas in particular here and not destroy how social media operates. Oh, absolutely. What distinguishes one social media platform from another is how they discriminate based on viewpoint. Now, you might disagree, and I have plenty of disagreements with the viewpoint discrimination that's been used by some of the social media platforms historically, often very arbitrary and without any sort of explanation. But- one of the reasons that TikTok is more successful than pick your social media platform or X is more successful than threads is because they give users content that they find more engaging. And that's because they feed up algorithmically more interesting content that is better tailored to the user's interest. If you can't discriminate based on viewpoint and platform some speech higher than other, other speech, then you just can't have a, a social media platform that's distinguished in any meaningful way from any other social media platform, you're essentially destroying that industry, at least within the state of, state of Texas.
1: And, that, and yeah, and, and Paul Clement pointed out that that you're basically you're pressuring the platforms to just avoid any type of liability by just presenting a, a, a totally uncurated feed to all their users. So they, you're not prioritizing any posts above any others, and it just becomes like a just. I think he said, he called it gobbledygook." Like you're just gonna log on to Twitter, and it's just you can see like things in different languages and, and like stuff that's not of interest to you. And of course, that right, we all know that's not how social media works. The whole point is that these these algorithms at the employer are are tailoring content uh, to users, things that interest them, uh, the, the things that they want to see. And yeah, you you're just kind of like getting rid of all of that that essential feature of social media.
2: Yeah, I mean that's. I was going to say, that's always to me been the core failing of the common carrier argument. And that is people are saying, oh, you are discriminating against certain viewpoints and you are deplatforming or or uh, diminishing the viewpoints that you don't agree with or that you don't want on your platform. Um, and therefore, we need to regulate you like a common carrier. Now, a common carrier is an entity that holds out service non-discriminatorily To the public on the same terms and conditions uh, across the service. Here what you seem to be saying is under the common carrier argument is you are not acting like a common carrier because you are discriminating based on who you're going to provide service to based on the viewpoints and based on the content of their communications and therefore the solution is to say you're you are a common carrier and now we can regulate you like one. It's a complete Mismatch, a complete disconnection between the alleged problem and the proposed remedy.
3: Alex, did you have any final thoughts here?
0: Well, I just think it's so interesting that the you know the user experience is so critical to the the products that are Facebook and Instagram and X. Um, you know that, like you said, Nico, that is that is the product that they're selling. And so to sort of transform them into something like, you know, a phone company or internet service provider just seems fundamentally wrong. What I will say, though, is, you know, listening to the to the oral arguments, I would not be surprised if they, you know, remand down. I hope they don't. You know, I hope we get resolution. Resolution is very urgently Needed in this space. Of course, that said, if they go against you know fire's views, <laughs> then I hope they remand and, and go slow. But it would be much better to get a you know a quick result in our favor, in favor of net choice. Um, you know, this seems clear to us. Of yeah, course, and, uh, we're fired. We always take the free speech.
2: Step. Yeah, and I should correct something I said earlier because they both cases are up on a preliminary injunction. But you're right, Nico. In Texas, the preliminary injunction was denied, so the court would have to. Um, you know, currently the status in Texas is the statute is enjo- is enjoined or being you know held in abeyance uh, pending the outcome at the Supreme Court. So either that arrangement would have to remain in place, or the court would have to uh, reverse the denial of the preliminary injunction and send the case back down for further proceedings. So the statute remained enjoined while further proceedings happened.
3: Yeah, and that it was enjoined by or stayed by the Supreme Court, and I think a, very, a split decision, five four, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Whereas in Florida,
2: the the uh, district court granted the preliminary injunction, and the Eleventh Circuit upheld it.
3: Well, we're going to be discussing this case and some of the other blockbuster cases in late March on the on the podcast after the NRA v. Vulo and Murphy v. Missouri cases, which I think are being argued at the Supreme Court, if I'm not mistaken, sometime uh, in late March, Ronnie is going to join the podcast along with fire chief counsel, Bob Gordon reviewer. So stay tuned for that. In the meantime, Ronnie, I thank you for taking this last minute request to join the podcast to discuss net choice. I'll let you get back to your, uh, your meetings. All right, folks, let's turn to our next topic of conversation, which is everyone's favorite pop artist, Taylor Swift. So For those who uh, follow Swiftum and the First Amendment, you might be familiar with the recent cease and desist letter sent by Taylor Swift's attorneys to Jack Sweeney. Jack Sweeney, this name might might sound familiar, is a junior at the University of Central Florida who runs social media accounts that track celebrity jets. Uh, In 2022, he came under fire by Elon Musk for tracking Elon Musk's jet. And he he runs these accounts in part to kind of see where these billionaires and celebrities are going. And also well, he's in a part, climate
0: change guy, right?
3: And also, yeah, in part to track the emissions of the private jets that are being used by these celebrities and millionaires and billionaires. And he uses to track these jets publicly available data from the Federal Aviation Administration and data that's provided by Volunteer hobbyists who um, have tools to track aircraft via aviation signals that are broadcast from the airplanes. So, like people, Elon, will people
0: still do that. Apparently, there.
3: yeah, I guess. I and I'm, I try to do some background as to how do they do it. I saw an article that said many aviation hobbyists feed their raw data into independent websites such as an ADS-B exchange. Um, the FAA in full disclosure, does allow some plane owners to request that their flights be hidden in the federal data that is revealed. Um, So it it can't be found on popular consumer websites like FlightAware, but you can still access these data because these signals are being broadcast. And so the the aviation hobbyists are able to access those signals and then feed it into this ADS-B exchange, whatever And then the
0: info is unhidden.
3: And then the info is is unhidden. So long and the short of it is, Elon Musk came after this guy, Jack Sweeney, for tracking his jet. And now on X, which Elon Musk owns, you can't post this flight information until something like 24 hours after a flight has taken off or landed. Aaron, I know you've done some research into this. Other platforms allow for sort of the immediate sharing of information as to when a flight is taken off or landing, correct? Yeah, that's right. So enter Taylor Swift now, whose lawyers have sent a cease and desist letter to Jack Sweeney saying that these flight tracking social media accounts represent, quote, direct and irreparable harm, as well as emotional and physical distress, constant state of fear. Taylor Swift is in for her personal safety. And they also say that while this might be a game to you, Jack Sweeney, or an avenue that you hope will earn you wealth or fame, it is a life or death matter for our client They further allege that there's no legitimate interest in or public need for this information other than to stalk, harass, and exert dominion and control. I think Jack might argue that there is public interest insofar as he is using these accounts to track the emissions of private jets. The contention is that this is doxing. Now, doxing is a, a concept that we've seen in the news quite a bit recently. It arose from the computer hacker world in the 1990s uh, during the early years of the World Wide Web and applied when a group of hackers exposed the identity of fellow hacker who sort of violated the norm of the hacker community. But there has been a lot of discussion about its implications via the First Amendment. Uh, Aaron, do you want to tee us up there?
1: Yeah, I think anytime the subject of doxing comes up, it is good to define terms too because People use the word to describe a lot of different things, especially in our current political discourse. Doxings can sometimes just be another term for basically disclosing any information about somebody without their consent. Uh, but that's also a way to describe a lot of what we call journalism. Um, or, or you know, people apply the doxing label to disclosing information about someone that's just not really private. Uh, the or terrorist- public, you mean? Yeah. Yeah. Right, right. They, about someone that about information that's public. Um, you know, another, another example I like is that the, of that is there was a Seattle journalist who uh, was at a, uh, a rally against police brutality and he uh, dropped his pe- press pass on the ground and a police officer found it and he tweeted it out, um, a picture of it and, and made some kind of joke. Like, I think he said, like, am I part of the resistance now? I have your press pass. Uh, And the press pass and the the journalist accused the police officer of doxing him. Now, the press pass just had his his name, his photo and his media affiliation, which is generally information that you'll find on any news website uh, about a journalist. Um, So, you know, question whether or not that is really doxing. Um, Now, granted, you know, the harder question would be when someone intentionally releases personal info about someone like a phone number or home address without their consent with some sort of malicious intent, like they want to humiliate that person or, 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 uh, they want other people to harass them or, and just basically give them a lot of unwanted attention. But even then the first Amendment's generally going to protect that type of speech because the first amendment protects the publication of, of truthful information, particularly on matters of public concern. Uh, cause again, that's, that's, a lot of what journalism is uh, and a core purpose of free speech and and free press is to bring to light information that's in the public interest. And sometimes that might include uh, sensitive or unflattering information about a person that they would prefer to keep private.
3: Yeah, there, there are already laws against some of the things that I think folks are concerned about. Uh, there are laws against true threats. There are laws against incitement, imminent lawless action, harassment, yeah, you know, stalking, there's the in- intimidation. There's the privacy tort of public disclosure of of private facts, but you know, doxing is often, as you say, involved. Uh, the allegation of doxing also invo- often involves the publication of truthful. Information
1: that that and, that that is often it has some sort of uh, that's in the public interest in some way. You know, even even the example of like disclosing somebody's address, there are are times when that can actually be a matter of public concern. Believe it or not. So, like one example of that is during the twenty twenty one New York City mayoral race, there were questions about Eric Adams who's now the mayor of NYC, but when he was a candidate, there were questions about his residency, right? The journalists were investigating this issue. They were looking at his campaign disclosure reports, tax filings, and other publicly available documents to try to get the bottom of, of this question of where does Eric Adams actually live? Does he actually live in New York City? And some of the news reports contained addresses of his properties and photos of his properties. But in that case, right, it was relevant to an issue of public concern, whether this candidate was misleading voters about living in the area that he's trying to govern. Um, so yeah. And I think you're right. Like existing law already addresses a lot of the harms that people are concerned about when it comes to doxing. And when you look at some of the state's laws that they passed specifically against doxing, they tend to have really broad and and vague language. Um, that's, that's concerning. Uh, and, and that, and that violates the first amendment. Um, and they and covers a lot of speech that many people would consider to have a legitimate or beneficial purpose so you know a general ban on just divulging personal information with the intent of causing the target humiliation distress uh it covers a lot of activity that many people would say is a legitimate way of holding people accountable for for wrongdoing um and with some of these laws you don't even have to intend the bad outcome it's just enough if you should have reasonably foreseen it uh so Um, you know, you can see how that can go wrong because like, should a journalist publishing this type of information just have foreseen that it was going to result in some harassment of the person that they're talking about? I mean, that's, you just have to be very careful when you're passing laws that are holding people legally responsible for third parties' bad conduct. Because then there's a lot of stuff that you're not going to be able to say just because anytime you speak publicly about someone, right? Especially if you're someone on Twitter, you have a lot of followers, you call someone out, there's always some risk that some lunatic is going to like, harass that person or threaten them or whatever. But you can't then just say, okay, then we can never just speak publicly, say negative things about people in public because someone else might do something bad. I mean, punish the person who does that, but don't
3: punish the speaker. I I think there's one thing, right? When you're publishing publicly available information, such as an address, for example, that you can find. Now that might you know, how that information is used might be harassing. It might result in a true threat. It might result in some other sort of conduct that is not First Amendment protected. But the mere sharing of information that people would like to be kept private, but is, is not, uh, such as um, crime reports, for example, example, whether someone is accused of a crime or a victim of a crime. Um, but the more tricky question, right, is around unlawfully obtained information. Alex, I would like you to kind of share what the perspective is on, on people who publish unlawfully obtained information.
0: Well, uh, you know, the, the Supreme Court has looked at this. Um, the case is Bartnicki v. Popper, uh, discussing what, you know, what are the obligations of, or, or I guess, what can journalists be held liable for if they publish information that you know they lawfully obtained but that which was unlawfully obtained um and you know by a source right by a a source source, right so you've got some source that devises some way of getting this information that you know may or may not be above board in this case not above board but then the journalist gets this information and republishes it uh, you know, are they liable? And, you know, the Supreme Court said, you know, no, they have protection for publishing this information. The, you know, these are core First Amendment principles that, you know, are we're always hearkening back to this idea that, you know, in the U.S. under the First Amendment, we want as wide open, robust discourse about issues of public concern as possible. And if we start, you know, hacking away at, well, you know, you're liable for this or you can't, you, this information is publicly available, but you can't publish it because someone was annoyed by it or, you know, they're worried that they might be harassed. You know, we, we narrow that universe of public discourse. Now that's not to say, you know, I mean, hearkening back to Taylor Swift, like just as a, as a Swifty, who is also a first amendment, you know, Lover, This was like devastating because I'm like, what is Taylor Swift doing? Like trying to, why does she have her goods out, you know, trying to crush the poor guy that's just publishing uh, her flight paths or whatever. Um, but that's not to say, I mean, I'm sure she is scared about, you know, people stalking her. And I'm sure when people get called out on X formerly Twitter, it is Nerve wracking. Like I don't even like when people retweet me, and and you know, are crit- nobody likes to be criticized in this social media world. That said, the First Amendment already does a really good job of figuring out when, you know, criticism or journalism crosses the line. There's a high bar, but it's not insurmountable. You know, when something uh, amounts to harassment or a true threat, or incitement, like that is not protected. And fire is never going to be out here saying, oh, we should protect that. But uh, if you start, again, you know, lowering that bar, then we get into very tricky territory where it's going to be near impossible to police. And what instead is going to happen is a lot of, a lot of speech is going to be chilled and a lot of public discourse about stuff that's important you know this jack sweeney guy you know i'm sure he i'm sure he does love the fame you know i'm sure he does love the notoriety but he seems to care genuinely about you know billionaires you know trotting around in their private jets uh you know ruining the climate while we're over here you know recycling our drinking out of paper straws and you know trying our (laughs) best to recycle and uh you know so i mean there is public interest in a lot of this stuff
3: yeah, a, a lot of journalism would be impossible, right? So, Daniel Ellsberg delivers to the New York Times the Pentagon Papers, uh, which kind of blew the lid open on the Vietnam War. And the Supreme Court rules that the Nixon administration can't issue a prior restraint against the New York Times and other publications that wanted to share the information that was provided to him. We see reports every day in the news of people. You know, just look at the Trump administration and how leaky that was. Sharing private information on the goings-on within big corporations or within the government to journalists who then publish that information, uh, sometimes naming their source and sometimes not. And in that Barnicki v. Vopper case that uh, was referenced, Alex, the Supreme Court in 2001 said it doesn't matter if a source obtained the material unlawfully, as long as the publisher, in this case, the New York Times, uh, did not participate in the illegal action and merely received the information from the source. So even if, for example, in this ADS-B exchange that um, is used to gather the broadcast signals from aviation jets and share it with the public, even if the mere gathering of that broadcast is illegal, so long as Jack isn't involved in the gathering of that broadcast and the sharing of it publicly, he can then take what it what these people who gathered it shared and report on it, which might be what he's actually doing. It's no different than, for example, the New York Times reporting on the Pentagon Papers case. So
0: or reporting on you know, uh, you know, reality winner leaks or you know the Chelsea Manning stuff. You know, a, a lot of. Really important journalism for you know time immemorial has been you know rooted out at you know at its source someone is leaking this stuff unlawfully and uh, you know
3: well you brought up you brought up Chelsea Manning and Julian Assange I think that's important because right now there's a case against Julian Assange and and WikiLeaks for the sharing of the information that was provided by Chelsea Manning and a big sticking point in that case is whether Julian Assange actually assisted. Chelsea Manning in procuring that information, which would not protect him from, um, certain liability. Um, but if he merely just received it and Chelsea Manning was the only person alleged to have, or part- actually participated in the taking of that classified information, then Julian Assange should be re- free to report on the information provided to him by a source in this case, Chelsea Manning. Yes. Go go ahead, Aaron.
1: No. Yeah. And, and of course the government can still punish Chelsea Manning, right? Because yes. the, and the, they did. The, and they did. Yeah. And, and, uh, the court said in Bart, Bart uh, there's a, there's a, a line in there that says the normal method of deterring unlawful conduct is to impose an appropriate punishment on the person who engages in it. Um, so yeah, I think that, that, that's important. Um, and in the, in the Julian Assange case, uh, He's charged under the uh, uh, espionage. It's like 17 charges under the Espionage Act. And the vast majority, you know, all of them except that one, uh, have to do with him receiving or publishing uh, information from a source. Uh, there, like you said, there's that one charge that alleges that he uh, conspired with Manning to try and crack, that he tried and failed uh, to crack a password uh, to some uh, government database, uh, somewhere where they they didn't have uh, authorization to access. But everything else is about his his publishing activity. Um, And the Espionage Act, you know, is, I I actually went back and read the language of it. It's just such a vague and overbroad law. Um, It criminalizes receiving or sharing classified information related to national security from any source if you have reason to believe the information will be quote used to the injury of the United States and on its face that seems to make it illegal just to read WikiLeaks or like tweet a link to it which I think is is wild Um, yeah and would,
3: would render the Pentagon Papers case uh wrongly decided um Now, of course, the Pentagon Papers case and the interpretation of the Constitution by the Supreme Court supersedes any sort of statute like the Espionage Act. So the Espionage Act should be unconstitutional under any plain reading or at least that portion of the Espionage Act under any plain reading of the Pentagon Papers case. So, and this was a case, right, or this was a statute, right, Aaron, that was passed uh, surrounding World War One, right, to criminalize dissent in opposition to that mm-hmm. war. In the yeah, States. it
1: just it just has so many bad, so many bad provisions in it, um, and uh, you know the 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 again a major purpose of the First Amendment is to enable the press, citizen journalists, activists to to act as government watchdogs. Um, uh, you know, Potter Potter Stewart said, without an informed and free press. There, there cannot be an enlightened people, and that's often going to entail revealing damning information about the government that would rather keep secret. Uh, Publishing leaks can expose government corruption, malfeasance, or, or like in the case of the the Pentagon Papers, lies to the American public. Um,
3: In this case, the the justifications for the war in Vietnam and how it was going.
1: That's right. Uh, There was a lot of yeah. There was information in there about of the Americans' history uh, or the United States' history of involvement in Vietnam. uh, escalating the war, yeah. I mean, in democracy, the press needs freedom to determine when publishing that that information is in the public interest, especially especially given the government's incentives, right, to hide more information than is necessary. And in fact, uh, Nixon's solicitor general, Erwin uh, uh, Griswold, um, who defended the government in the Pentagon Papers case, later admitted that there was no trace of a threat to national security in those documents, <laughs>
3: which, which it's is amazing, be tough right? To be a lawyer, can it? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Especially one for the government. Um, yeah,
1: and it's not which is not surprising because the, the they were documenting act, U.S. activities in Vietnam at the time that the New York Times and the Washington Post published the the Pentagon Papers. It, it was about like activity activities that had taken place like years, if not decades, before. Uh, so it wasn't a threat to national security of, of like the, the the government's current war efforts in Vietnam. Um, yeah.
3: yeah, these doxing stories have been in the news in other contexts as well. Uh, Some of our listeners will be familiar with the case at Harvard. So October 7th happens, right? In response, the undergraduate Palestine Solidarity Committee at Harvard, which I guess is a consortium of different student groups, um, issued a statement that called Israel entirely responsible for the violence on October 7th. Uh, It was co-signed by this letter, this open letter was co-signed by 34 Harvard student groups. And in response, folks who disagreed with the contention that Israel was entirely responsible for the violence on October 7th, drove trucks around campus, around Harvard's campus, with the names and some publicly available information about members of these 34 student groups. This was called doxing. This was widely criticized. Uh, There had, in addition to the trucks, been some websites put up in the days following that listed the personal information of students linked to the clubs that had signed on to the statements, including full names, class years, past employment, social media profiles, photos, hometowns, that sort of thing. Uh, Two of those sites had been taken down by Google subsequently for violating Google's terms of service. But Alex, what is your thinking about the effort by some of the critics of this open letter? to drive around trucks. Is that protected speech? Uh,
0: Protected, but ill-advised. So this is one of the, you know, the stickier points, um, when, you know, we're first amendment advocates. I also do, you know, head up our, our campus work. Um, and we are always, of course, you know, guided by first amendment principles. We just talked about, uh, you know, the flimsiness of doxing definitions and what really does what you know is it just publishing uh is is it journalism or is it something different you know obviously i don't think people would argue that this is journalism this i isn't think the this, new york
3: times reporting on the pentagon this,
0: you know, yeah i mean clearly this is a advocacy group that is you know wanting to at least raise awareness about this, but doing it in a way that, you know, students are saying like, this is, you know, freaky. We're seeing that. I mean, students are, are telling uh, fire, speaking out of the media saying, I don't like this. It's making me feel scared. Um, I, you know, am worried that people are going to come to my house or harass me. That said, we're not hearing a lot of, that stuff actually happening. So it's like we're fearful that it's going to happen, but it's not actually happening such that it would, you know, that people are getting subsequently arrested for criminal harassment or stalking or that sort of thing. So, I mean, that's a good thing. So that said, protected speech, but especially in the campus context, we really don't like to see this kind of, you know, Expression, because it sort of diminishes the overall campus climate um, where people can have open and productive debates if you've got these sort of third parties driving around saying like, you know, essentially like we think you should go (laughs) harass these people or you should know who they are. You shouldn't give them jobs. By definition, you know, undergrads especially are learning, you know, they're here to test out their civic engagement muscle and build that and figure out, you know, how do I dip my toe in? Um, And if people are responding to that by being like, you should never give this person a job like that's, you know, as a society, I don't think that that is a productive way of engaging with, you know, our, our, (laughs) our newest adult members. So again, it really tricky, but again, nothing illegal about these billboards, but there's an ick factor for sure.
3: Nobody's immune from criticism, right? So if you sign on to this open letter, you can expect criticism. I think some of the problem that you're alluding to, Alex, with the use of these trucks that it, according to the people who drove them around is intent to deter is intended to deter employers from hiring these students is that it chills expression, is that it chills people's participation in the conversation surrounding the October 7th attacks, and that it's meant to do so. It's meant to scare people from having an opinion. Um, So while it can be protected, it can also have a chilling effect. correct, Aaron?
1: Exactly. Yeah. And, and I think that, um, there's, It's I I agree. You know, I would prefer to see a norm against the general norm against this type of kind of public shaming behavior because,
3: you know, this is an attempt at cancel culture, right? Like this is. Yeah,
1: right. But 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 it is something to deal with through norms, I think. Right. It is. So, you know, this type of shaming is is often unproductive. You know, trying to get someone fired for their speech is is bad. Um, But at the same time, it's not the government's role. The government shouldn't be trying to distinguish between like good and bad doxing or good or bad forms of public criticism. Um, so, you know, some speech may be unethical uh, and, and have some sort of chilling effect doesn't necessarily mean it should be illegal. Um, and this is yeah, this definitely is protected speech. It's on a matter of public concern. Um, but yeah, there's still a concern that it might made some of those students uh, afraid to speak out on third rail issues in the future uh, that it's, it's this sort of public shaming isn't conducive to a culture of free expression and constructive dialogue. Um, but you know, you also at the same time want to be careful that you're not policing too hard the way that people engage in public criticism. Um, it's, there's a debate We've to
0: certainly be, seen universities do that. Uh, that's, that's one of their favorite things <laughs> to right. do. So yes, I'm not encouraging yeah. that. Yeah. It's, the, the problem-
3: Yeah, the problem is if you forbid the sharing of truthful information Now, we didn't discuss in the previous conversation, sharing of untruthful information, which is not always protected speech. But if you forbid the sharing of truthful information under some sort of vague definition of doxing, student activists are going to use that all the time to silence and censor their political opponents. And we've seen it attempted in that way on campus over the past decade or two, since doxing has become kind of part of the public lexicon but Aaron did you want to share one last word before we moved on from this stocks? yeah only think. that I
1: think that the the uh, the upshot of all this is that universities the government should stick to punishing actual unprotected speech that falls into the narrow First Amendment categories like true threats uh, incitement to immediate violence uh, harassment is unprotected but yeah unless you're unless you're falling into one of those uh, narrow and well-defined categories then that that speech we should just allow the the, the, the debate to happen one of
3: the interesting things about doxing, we're working on an explainer on doxing for Fire's website right now is how do you spell it? Is it D-O-X-X-I-N-G or is it D-O-X-I-N-G? I think we're going with the double X, if I'm not mistaken. After I, some... I, like go, I I like
1: to go I like to go three X's, but
3: <laughs> you might be the only person on the internet using that. Uh, but uh, it seems just as justified, perhaps as as two X's or one X's, I but think I don't want to
0: grammar thing. You have to like double up that consonant before, like if you were spelling like I don't know jogging or I I don't know. I feel like you have to. I don't know. This just I think we're we saying need if it's X's. one X, like...
3: if it's one X, it's doxing.
0: Right. That's exactly what I'm saying. Yes, it's unacceptable. Don't <laughs> know. No. It's like There's... it's
3: like kappa copa. It's just like you never know how to pronounce these things with one or two X's uh, or one or two of uh, the same letters. In any case, I don't want to venture far from post October 7th controversies, uh, I want to move now to Princeton university, which has these, this no contact order policy, uh, that has been wielded in some weird ways. So for example, uh, back in February of 2022, a student who was a member of the Princeton committee on Palestine requested a no contact order in response to a journalist's coverage of that student group and a protest that it was organizing. Um, The student had gotten a no contact order. Um, But it was weird because the journalist who was the recipient of that no contact order had communicated with this PCP leader only once. It's weird to use PCP as the uh, shorthand for (laughs) Princeton committee on Palestine, but that's what it is. Um, and the journalist had only communicated with this leader to confirm facts and quotes prior to publication of an article about a protest the leader was in, involved in. Uh, all Princeton, seems normal. All seems normal, right? Yes. So a journalist reaches out to you for to confirm facts or get a quote, and you get a no-contact order uh, preventing you from communicating with the subject of your story. Well, that's the policy
0: that Princeton had, and I say had because FIRE helped get rid of it. <laughs> but, sure did,
3: sure yes. did. They, they, I'm, I'm, I reviewed our coverage of it, Alex, and it seemed like the order was issued pursuant to its Title IX sexual assault policy. It didn't even make any sense. Um, it, the The policy allowed any student to seek a no-contact order or no-communication order due to interpersonal conflicts. Uh, The student in this case who received the no-contact order, Danielle Shapiro, wrote about it in the Wall Street Journal, and it was effectively amended. Fire got involved. But there was a second incident that arose on November 9th of last year when a journalist with the Princeton Tory covered a campus protest held by Students for Justice in Palestine. And while the journalist was recording footage of the protest – A graduate student allegedly attempted to block the journalist's camera and then followed her around as she tried to cover the event. Uh, And we've been seeing
0: a lot of this like post-October 7th where, you know, journalists are trying to cover events and people are saying, we don't feel safe with you trying to cover this. And so there's been post-October 7th has been tough in this respect.
3: The journalist reported this incident, the kind of interfering with their journalistic work, the coverage of an event happening in a public space, to a public safety officer. But the officer blamed the journalist for, quote, inciting something, close quote, and did not intervene. And then the graduate student um, allegedly continued to obstruct the journalist, allegedly pushing her and stepping on her foot. And after the protest,
0: to add insult to injury.
3: Went and got one of those no contact orders because against Princeton the Because Princeton
0: let you get no contact orders against anyone for essentially any reason, which <laughs> yes. is insane.
3: And the journalist goes to the dean, right, and says, like, how do I do my journalism if I can't contact my sources? And the the dean
0: The dean's uh, like, I don't know, actually. You might just want to not contact them anymore. <laughs> yeah. <So laughs> or like <laughs> it was it was insane.
3: So what's going on here?
1: Go ahead, Aaron. I was just going to say, it's kind of nice to just have a get out, get out of jail free card, basically for any negative press coverage. I mean, right. Like and that's exactly,
0: is, but- that's exactly how, you know, st- these Princeton, these Ivies, you know, they're smart. They figured out at least a few of these folks were like, I can just get a no contact order if I don't like them covering, you know, my, you know, some, th- my leadership of this organization or this protest or whatever, um, you know, no contact orders can be an incredibly important tool. Um, they can be used, you know, when there is proven interpersonal violence between students uh, or faculty. They can be used as an interim measure, for example, where, you know, one student reports That there was some kind of altercation, but the university can't immediately investigate it. So, for the next 24 hours, they impose a no contact order until, you know, the next business day they can investigate it. Fire thinks that that is, you know, a proper use. But here we have a situation where there was this like very vague policy that students figured out they could use as this like weird loophole and even worse implementation. So, the policy, I think, at one point had said something like, you know, you needed to at least contact the person that you were requesting a no contact order against and say, like, hey, I don't like your behavior. Can you resolve it? Before then, Princeton would move on to implementing the no contact order. That was what the policy said. But in practice, what was happening was there was none of that there there was just, you asked for it and it was granted. There was none of this, no, no due process. Princeton wasn't even reaching out to these journalists saying like, hey, what's going on here? What's your side of the story? Should we have a hearing? You know, they were just slapped with these uh, no contact orders. Sometimes Princeton calls them no communication order. They're very similar. They effectively do the same thing in making journalists not able to to do their job so the good thing is that you know once fire got on this and several of the we worked with um our friends at the adl anti-defamation league um they we you know worked together to write to princeton and say hey this is you know absolutely crazy and they changed the policy like within 24 hours which is kind of weird again because we had actually fire alone had written to princeton a year ago, when we first heard of this situation, um, with the there was an initial journalist, Danielle Shapiro, like you said, Nico, who had written about it in the Wall Street Journal, and Princeton sort of ignored us. But everything has changed after October 7th. The stakes have been raised, and I guess where they wouldn't listen to fire in the beginning, now they will listen to fire and ADL. Um, I don't know, but we're just happy that it it got changed. And now hopefully journalists, student journalists at Princeton can cover stuff without getting worried that, you know, being worried that they're going to be slapped with some kind of no contact order. And, you know, that's so, that's so formal too. And scary. Like if you're a student and you have a no contact, like who knows when you're a grad student, do you have to report that to get into grad school? Like, have you ever been subject to a no con- I mean, that just, that's the kind of thing that if you have to reveal it, it sounds very you know, it sounds like you've done something really, really bad. Um, but here, Princeton's just you know handing them out like candy.
3: Yeah, Danielle only sought to confirm facts or get a quote. Right? <laughs> it's like normal journalism. So. Totally.
0: And and of course, we look into it. We go, is there anything more here? You know, it was totally above board because there has
3: to be, right? It's such a crazy policy to have without any guardrails. But
0: you go, there you go. This can't be happening. But it is, and it's <laughs> not. Snar- <And,
1: and>, <laughs> yeah. Also, it's definitely not the first time we've seen no contact orders abused in, in the context of higher education, right? Um, like you said, Alex, there are definitely circumstances where they're, they're legitimate. Um, if somebody's stalking someone, stalking someone, threatening them, what have you. But um, like I, I just think of another example of a university police department. This was a case uh, I had in our, our public advocacy department. They issued a no contact order against a parent of a student who had contacted a faculty member a grand total of two times uh, just to discuss her daughter's grade in a course. And then the police department issued a no contact order against the parent, prohibiting from having contact with any faculty member uh, at the university. So yeah, it's it's just clearly excessive.
3: I want to move now to Columbia, where on January 23rd of this year, the Columbia Law School Student Senate denied official recognition to a student group called Law Students Against Anti-Semitism after some student senators objected to the group's definition of anti-Semitism. Uh, the definition of anti-Semitism that would be used by the law students against anti-Semitism was the IHRA definition of anti-Semitism. The student senators accused accused uh, the law students against anti-Semitism of using this definition because it could be used to stifle speech. So let's just level set as to what the IHRA definition, and this is the International Holocaust Remembrance Association's definition of anti-Semitism is. It's like a one or two page document. It's kind of long, so I'm not going to quote it all, but it says that anti-Semitism is a certain perception of Jews, which may be expressed as hatred toward Jews rhetorical and physical manifestations of anti-Semitism are directed toward Jewish or non-Jewish individuals and or their property toward Jewish community institutions and religious facilities. And it says some examples that Including, could be- Including but
0: not limited to.
3: Yeah, of anti-Semitism could include denying the Jewish people the right to self-determination, for example, by claiming that the existence of, state of the state of Israel is a racist endeavor, applying double standards by requiring- Of Israel, a a behavior not expected or demanded of any other democratic nation, drawing comparisons of contemporary Israeli policy to that of the Nazis, and holding Jews collectively responsible for actions of the state of Israel. This is an interesting case because FIRE opposes the IHRA definition of anti-Semitism, in part because these examples that it it lays out as examples of anti-Semitism clearly include constitutionally protected speech. But we only oppose this definition when wielded by the state or institutions uh, of higher education to police speech, to look for examples of uh, unprotected speech. We've never opposed it when a private group merely wants to use it to track examples of anti-Semitism that have been happening on campus. Indeed, that's why the definition was created by I believe his name was Kenneth Stern, and the State Department, it was used as kind of a informal way to track anti-Semitism, but it was never anticipated to be a tool used by the government to say, okay, that is anti-Semitism, that expression is anti-Semitic, and therefore it can be punished. So and you I, can
0: tell because it's so broad. I mean, like yes. that is not the kind you would not see that in a statute or a law. I mean, it's it's a very general description. And the, the private group idea. also can
1: can use it. I mean, even if they want to use it to argue that this type of speech should be unprotected, I mean, that is their right too. We would disagree with them strongly and oppose that. Uh, but you have the right to argue that a certain speech that is protected by the First Amendment shouldn't be.
3: Yeah, the group doesn't have any sort of. Authority right. within Colombia to police speech, other than kind of within its membership. Uh, it's a voluntary association; that can do that. But like, so this definition can't be wielded to stifle speech. And even if you think that like their calling for censorship is um, is bad, like there's nothing against, as you say, Aaron. There's nothing that prohibits groups from calling for censorship or for advocating for policies that would chill speech. They just don't have any power to execute on them. It's uh, it's it's required of those institutions with power or those with authority to not um, accept the demands for censorship.
0: Student governments don't often know what it is that I mean. The, I would assume that you know the Columbia Law student government would know more than you know your average student government. That said, what we like to see is, you know, so when student governments are approving uh, student fee funding or saying whether or not a student organization is allowed to be officially recognized, if the school promises free speech, if they're a private school that promises free speech, or if they're a public school, bound by the First Amendment, they have to do that in a viewpoint-neutral way. So there can be requirements like have a constitution and fill out this paperwork and have an advisor and once those things are done uh you know there can be some level of debate and then they're supposed to be approved the funding or the recognition what we more often see and what was happening in this case was you know we're worried about approving this group because of its views and that is that's viewpoint discrimination. Um, and what was so interesting, of course, is that they're like, this could be anti-speech, um, which is you know, what we love. We, we just love it at Firewind. All sides claim free speech, and, uh, and we have to step in and say what free speech
3: actually you, you, means. You can't uh, deny a group recognition or benefits just because they might be anti-speech. You could have a censorship club. We would go Columbia. to
0: bat for the censorship club so hard. Let me just tell you, we would be all over that. We we love it when we get to defend people calling for censorship, because we'll say, we don't love censorship, but we will defend your right to you know express your desire for it. It's protected. Speech. And,
3: and to be clear, we're not contending here that the uh, Law Student Association Against Anti-Semitism is calling for censorship. And in fact, we have no problem with the IHRA definition insofar as it just Tracks what you perceive to be as anti-Semitic. It's when again those with power use the definition and, namely, its examples to police speech and punish those who who uh, fall within the definition that we would then have a problem.
0: Yeah, I mean, we'd have a problem if like the group for if if the university was taking data from the group and saying whenever you call this anti-Semitism, we will punish it. But there's no evidence.
3: We will investigate and punish it. Right. Yeah, but, um, We won the case, right? The group got official recognition. Good work, Alex. Yes. there we go. The
0: president wrote back and said, we got your letter. We just approved them. Have a nice day.
3: (laughs) Paraphrase. We're we're, we're two for two on these campus cases that we're discussing at Princeton and Columbia. If they would only
0: all go so smoothly.
3: I know, right? We had another sort of victory at Columbia, Uh, the Columbia University Senate passed a resolution for the university to adhere to an institutional neutrality standard, uh, kind of modeling the Calvin Report. And for those of our listeners who haven't heard us discuss institutional neutrality before, it's the idea that a college or university is the host and sponsor of critics. It is not itself the critic. So therefore, it does not take positions on social and political issues. The sort of thing that got Claudine Gay, in part, uh, in trouble. The reason she wrote and rewrote seven different statements in the post October seventh uh, attacks on Israel. There is a lot of interest in by colleges and universities right now in adopting a position on institutional neutrality, a la the University of Chicago's Calvin Report, because they're putting themselves in no-win situations when they opine on some political and social issues and not others when they opine on Donald Trump's election or the war in Ukraine or the Dobbs decision on abortion and then they're silent on the attacks on Israel on October 7th people are like well what gives what what is guiding you to determine what you issue statements on and take positions on versus other issues and then there's just kind of the other consideration that if you want an environment for academic freedom and open inquiry and robust discourse when the senior levels at the administration put their thumb on the scale and say this is what our institution believes these are our values it creates an added burden and it chills the discussion on campus surrounding those contentious social and political issues there's a lot of debate surrounding the abortion issue there's a lot of debate right now surrounding the U- war in Ukraine there's obviously debate every presidential election you know when Harvard comes in and commends uh, President Biden on winning election, but says, you know, at the same time in 2016, that they recognize that a lot of students are experiencing trauma surrounding Donald Trump's election. Like that is a statement in and of itself, and so a lot of universities right now are saying we're getting out of this business. University of North Carolina system did it. Vanderbilt University did it. The University of Wyoming has adopted uh, a Calvin Principles statement, and now at Columbia University, the university senate has passed it, but it's, I think, up to the university administration and perhaps the board of regents or trustees of actually adopting a formal position.
0: But a good sign at our former worst school for free speech a few years ago, I mean, even even the worst school for free speech <laughs> can turn it all around. Well, and, have and, toxic and, positivity around this idea.
3: Let's not give it too much credit until the administration actually takes uh, a stand on this. You know, sometimes the faculty can be good and the administration can be bad, but the administration does deserve credit for its ruling on making that uh, law students against anti semitism group officially recognized. Well,
0: the law students themselves, you know, the law student, the law students, you know, association themselves made that decision. So good on them as well. They, they, we gave them the law and. They briefed the cases and figured out that we were right, I guess.
3: So we'll watch we'll continue to watch Columbia. I want to move now to my alma mater, Indiana University, which is, is having a go of it. Uh,
0: really, truly, we're like another one, another one. Yes. <laughs>
3: <I know>. So
0: <laughs> to quote the great poet of our time. Who is that? DJ Khaled, is that? Who am I quoting? <laughs> oh,
3: so God. essentially at Indiana University, they had this long planned art exhibit by the artist, Samia Halabi, who's a Palestinian American abstract artist. They had created all the materials for it and it was set to open, I believe in January. But the university leaders decided that it was going to be canceled, citing vague security concerns. IU has been under pressure, um, from the state legislature. Uh, There's a congressman, a state state congressman, Jim Banks, who threatened to withhold funding. Or no, this is a uh, federal congressman, Jim Banks, who had threatened to withhold federal funding from the university if they don't adequately address perceived anti-Semitism on campus. So that's one issue, right? You've got this art exhibit that was already planned. All the promotional materials were printed for it. And then the university decides, nope, can't have the Palestinian-American artist. Um. Art exhibit coming up. And then you have the background here where there's threats to its funding. You also have this faculty member, Abdul Khatarcino, who has been barred, he's a tenured professor, has been barred from teaching until this fall, after he is alleged to have improperly booked an event space on behalf of a student-led group, the Palestine Solidarity Committee. Now, the Palestine Solidarity Committee wanted to host this man, Michael Pellet. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. He's an Israeli American activist who have argued for the creation of a, of one democratic state with equal rights for Israelis and Palestinians. So as many student groups know, when you are booking a room or you want to become a registered student organization, you need to have a faculty advisor sign off on it. So, Abdul Qadr Sino submitted a form to reserve the room so that this this, uh, Israeli-American activist could speak to this Palestine Solidarity Committee. Um, A few hours after he submitted the request, the reservation was approved. Eight days later, he was called in by the chair of the Middle Eastern Languages and Cultures Department and told that he made a mistake on the form when he submitted it. Uh, Sino had listed Middle Eastern Languages and Culture as his department, and as a result, given the false impression that this was a depo- department sponsored or sanctioned event. And so it sounds like there was just confusion surrounding the submission of this form. And you could imagine it you're looking at a form, right? You're filling out all your information, and it, it says department, and you list your department because that's the department you're a part of. But in this case, I guess on this form, that actually means like, is there a department that's sponsoring? the vent sino said this is an honest mistake he assumed the department's field simply meant what i said it meant or might have meant um and he resubmitted the form or he asked the palestine solidarity committee to resubmit the form it was denied um it was denied by the university because of alleged short notice and because they were concerned um that there wouldn't be security enough security necessary to protect the event on such short notice. Uh, the interim dean of one of the schools at Indiana university claimed that Sino had falsely or in it correctly indicated the room reservation was for an academic event, not for a student organization that he used forgery quote forgery or unauthorized alteration of university documents to reserve the university space. So essentially what you have here is a de minimis paperwork error that you could imagine someone would make
0: no ill will intended totally and they
3: barring a tenured professor from teaching until next fall as a result
0: because they saw a little error that they thought we can get him on this one
3: it's absolutely bullshit. I was the president of a student organization at Indiana university. These were like deform These are like just simple forms that you would submit and they always got approved if a room was available and they were hosting it here in Woodburn, which is like a giant academic building. And there are tons of rooms that students can use to reserve spaces to get a guest speaker. And the sort of like hemming and hawing over whether it's an academic event or an event for a student organization, like student organization events, can be academic events, right? Like it doesn't need to be sponsored by a department for it to be an academic event. So there, you're just kind of um, hemming and hawing and debating over semantics, and they're barring a tenured professor from teaching as a result of it. So like, if
0: universities were focused on their core mission of education, they should be falling all over themselves to facilitate, you know, student discussion speakers, like whenever possible. And if there is some, you know, vague security concern or whatever, they should be, you know, send a security guard down there, foot the bill. Um it's very clear here that their goal is to, is not to facilitate this speech, but instead, you know, shut it down because it's controversial. And clearly they were looking for any possible uh avenue through which they thought they might legally be able to do it yeah
3: controversial afraid of the funding threats from jim banks aaron
1: yeah i mean it it wouldn't be the first time that a university was using some bullshit pretext uh, for censorship they do they do this all the time uh administrators where they know that they seem to know that they can't punish speech just based on its content or potential to uh, cause controversy uh so they they start looking all over for like what what's what's a and a, a on the surface, uh, a legitimate reason that I can stop the speech from happening, um, and it's just, or you know, like another classic example, right, is when like a professor says something controversial, and the university wants to punish him for it, but they can't, so they start looking through his entire history, like let's go back twenty years and see if he did something uh, that might might have been uh, against uh, uh, our rules. And show it, me uh, the man, and I'll find you the crime. Right. Right. right exactly. Almost. So.
3: Yeah. Well, <laughs> you know. Everyone loves safety, right? Everyone wants to be safe. So universities often fall back on this justification to to ban protected expression on campus. And we've seen it time and time again. We've even litigated a case involving security fees that were levied against a student group that wanted to host actor and uh, social justice activist, rapper, excuse me, and social justice activist Boots Riley at Western Michigan University. We won that case. It's just a tired tired justification for censorship and didn't even bear out in this case. So despite being denied the room reservation, the event took place as it scheduled as an act of civil disobedience. and this is this is like the second act of civil disobedience I've seen by students who have been faced with bullshit censorship justifications. Our listeners might recall the situation at the University of Pennsylvania when a student group wanted to screen the documentary Israelism and University of Pennsylvania denied the request to do so based on security concerns. They screamed it anyway. Guess what happened? Nothing. A conversation. Same thing happened here at and, Indiana and, University. And
1: also, I, I think every time we've had a case where the university has has said they have legitimate security concerns about an event to justify canceling it, and we filed when it's at a public university, um, or even sometimes a private university, you can file a public ret- records request with a local police department if they say they have had contact with the police department. If it's a public university, you can get public records from the university itself, and we've done that to see. Okay, let's see. Let's make you. Let's have the university show its cards. What were its concerns? Every time we've done that, not no actual like true threats have shown up. I, I mean, at least any case that I was involved in, it was always just like a lot of harsh criticism, people saying, you know, maybe people using harsh language and or maybe saying they're going to show up to protest at most. But that alone is not, you know, that's not like a true security threat that would justify shutting down an event.
3: All right. I want to turn to one last case. Um, not a post October 7th case, although it did happen after October 7th. It's not related to the uh, Israel Hamas war. So you have this guy, Michael Cassidy, he's a former congressional and legislative candidate from Mississippi who walks into the Iowa state Capitol and destroys a display erected by the satanic temple of Iowa. The idol was of Baphomet um this is the the display it was a display display of the idol of Baphomet uh who is I guess a robed figure with a goat head (laughs) people might
0: Satanists love it
3: yeah you've you've probably seen it before you think of Satanists that you know it's one of the images that that comes to mind
1: I never feel like Uh, I've seen that image in horror movies too
3: yes yeah yeah from Um, your nightmares maybe maybe our editors can put up a photo of Baphomet in any case um Michael Cassidy had been charged with felony mischief and a hate crime. Uh, going to a a public space in the case of a state capital or a private space and destroying property is not protected expression. I think we can all agree on that one, right? Agreed.
0: <laughs> Agreed. And I <laughs> and, think the and, and, hate crime thing was like because of it was like because of a like targeting a particular religion.
3: Yes. Yes. Um, and the IRS says that the Satanic Temple is a tax exempt church. You might agree with that. You might disagree with it, but it's
0: you know. But we all have to law. agree with the IRS. So yes.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Other pa- under pain of audit, but uh, the members of the Satanic Temple had also received permission to install the exhibit. So, fast forward to February fifth, Iowa doesn't like that they can have satanic displays in the Iowa State cap- Capitol. So you have Iowa Senator Sandy Solomon introduce a bill which would prohibit displays, symbols, or the practice of Satanic worship on public property in public schools or on any state-owned property. And the bill would also prohibit the recognition of Satanism as a religion. Producer Sam pulled some other interesting text from the bill that I think is worth reading. The bill says, the General Assembly finds that good and evil exist. The supreme being upon whom we depend for continued blessings personifies that which is good. Baphomet. Evil. <laughs> Baphomet. <laughs> I think they have a different supreme being in mind there, Aaron. Uh, they continue in the bill, evil is personified in the creature known as Satan. It is the duty of the government to play an appropriate role in protecting the inhabitant residents of Iowa from evil while encouraging and facilitating good.
0: It's not? What happened to separation of church and state? Oh my God, what's going on?
3: (laughs) Well, can Aaron and Alex, the state of Iowa, ban and target just the satanic temple from displaying its imagery, its symbols, or its people from practicing on public property in public schools or in any state-owned property?
1: No. And look, I'm no fan of Satan, personally, but... (laughs) you this is just a blatantly viewpoint based restriction uh public public forums when the government uh opens up uh public property to expressive activity like like on a in a public or there are traditional public forums right like streets sidewalks and parks uh where americans have historically exercised their first amendment rights and the government it's just a cardinal rule of the first amendment um that you can't discriminate, exclude people from those public forums based on their views, and that's clearly what's happening here. Uh, and the same idea applies uh, when the government establishes a public forum, like in a you know, it sets aside space in a state house where people can have displays. Um, the same, which is presumably
3: apply. how the Satanic Temple got that Baphomet, disorder. right? Exactly.
1: Um, so, uh, and, and by the way, you know, if you're if you're religious, you should. Also, you should fully support the principle of viewpoint neutrality because it equally protects religious groups right to access these public forums uh, with their views. Um, And there actually are several Supreme Court decisions holding that exclusion of religious groups uh, from government property that has been made available for expressive use is unconstitutional. So like, uh, for instance, a a public school opening its facilities after hours for for community groups to use. You can't exclude a group uh, just because. They want to use it for like religious activity, and because because sometimes you see the argument from the other side that say, well, that's actually a violation of the Establishment Clause for the government to allow that type of activity on its property. But it's not as long as it's the group's own speech and not the government's speech uh, trying to establish a religion.
3: Yeah, you can't have a situation where the government opens up a forum or a pr- uh, public forum and allows any viewpoint to be expressed, so long as it's not a religious for- viewpoint. Um, that would, that would be, that would be strange. And Aaron, you mentioned that there are some Supreme court cases on point here. I think the most relevant one is probably shirtlift v. Boston from 2022 in which, uh, the city of Boston had opened up its flagpoles for groups to like kind of fly their flag alongside the city of Boston flag, the Palmia flag. Uh, and over a 12 year period, the city had approved 284 flag raising events and had never denied a flag-raising application. Enter Camp Constitution, which is an organization that seeks to quote enhance the understanding of the country's judeo-christian moral heritage. They wanted to fly a Christian flag for its event. Uh, it was denied by the city of Boston. And the Supreme Court said that the flag-raising program did not constitute government speech, so it could not therefore refuse to fly a private religious organization's flag and and meanwhile approve other viewpoints or other organizations flag here. So it's almost exactly on point. You can't allow other religious groups or other viewpoints to have displays on, on property of the, the state Capitol in Iowa while meanwhile, excluding only that viewpoint that love Satan, I guess in this case.
0: Yeah. I mean, they don't have to let like I don't know. I mean, they don't have to allow the menorah in the Capitol and they don't have to allow the nativity and they, you know, they can say
3: They don't have to allow displays in the Capitol, but if you, they allow displays in the Capitol, you can't discriminate based on viewpoint. Exactly.
1: Yeah, you don't have to open up a public forum in, in, in a place like that. But once you do, then then the First Amendment rules apply. And then the number one rule is uh, is that there's no viewpoint discrimination.
3: Wow! All right. All right, folks. Well, I think there's probably more First Amendment news that we could cover, but we're an hour and 20 minutes into it, so I think we're going to have to leave it there. Alex Mori, the director of FIRE's Campus Rights Advocacy Pro- Program, joined us, as, along with Aaron Turr, the director of FIRE's Public Advocacy Program. Alex and Aaron, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks, Nico. Thanks, Nico. This podcast is hosted by me, Nico Perino, and produced by Sam Niederholzer and myself. It's edited by my colleagues, Aaron Reese and Ella Ross, sometimes Chris Maltby as well. You can learn by learn more about So To Speak by going to our YouTube channel where we'll have video of this and other conversations from the podcast. You can also follow us on a number of social media channels. Those can be found in the show notes here. We do take reviews. Reviews help listeners find this show. So please leave it wherever you listen to this podcast. And if you have feedback for us as well, go to So To Speak at the fire.org. And finally, don't forget, we are now on Substack. So if you want to head over to Substack, subscribe to this show there's also a way to become a fire member as well and get access to exclusive once monthly conversations with me and and usually fires fire staff but uh some year some months we might bring in outsiders to come and have a conversation with you if you want to get access to that members only conversation once a month please either make a donation to fire at the membership level which is 25 dollars a year or become a paid subscriber to so to speak on Substack. and until next time I thank you all again for listening.